all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fossone. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at LegalHelpForVeterans.com. Well, it is Easter Sunday, and you're listening to Veterans Radio. I'm Jim Fawson, as mentioned earlier. You know, this is the time of year when uh, spring is coming. We're all very hopeful. Easter certainly is all about uh, peace on earth. Unfortunately, we don't have peace on earth. Conflicts in Ukraine and all over the country, all over the world. So we're going to do a little uh, reflecting today on Veterans Radio. You're going to hear about some uh, men primarily who have served as military chaplains and what they bring to our military forces all around the world, really, uh, both in times of war and conflict, but also in times of relative peace, which is what we do have now. But these are inspiring stories that we think you'll get a lot out of particularly, as I say, at this time of year. So enjoy this, and uh, we'll uh, bring you these stories as we have in the past. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today John L. Call, Captain Call, retired from the Navy after about uh, 26 years. Captain, welcome to Veterans Radio. Uh, Thanks, Jim. Glad to be here. Well, we have you on because of your Navy service, but uh, also because of your particular insights as a Navy chaplain. You are a Catholic priest. You were born in uh, Wyandotte, Michigan, and uh, did your preliminary uh, education and and preparation for the priesthood here in uh, Metro Detroit area. And somewhere along the way, you talked somebody into letting you join the Navy. Not the normal path for for any Catholic priest. Uh, tell us a little bit about why a kid from Wyandotte, Michigan, and for those of you not familiar with Michigan around the world, or Wyandotte in particular, it sits on the water. So I'm sure you saw those uh, big freighters go up and down. But why did a kid from Wyandotte want to end up in the Navy? Well, that's, that's a big part of it. I, those ships just were, those were a fascination 
um, where, where there was a mystery about them. Where, where, where were they? Uh, where are they going? Um, uh, that sort of thing. But um, the Navy is all my aunt's fault, actually. She worked at the Gros Ile Naval Air Station uh, long, long since uh, disbanded. Uh, but she used to bring back these glossy recruiting um, magazines with uh, just all these pictures of sailors doing what they do in far off places. And oh, I was, <laughs> I was hooked. I had forgotten that there was a, uh, a, a naval station down there on Gross Hill. That makes, that ties that together. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Oh yeah. It's still there is a civilian airfield, uh, um, but uh, that's that's where it started. And uh, I guess you got a little extra boost on, boy, this would be an interesting career if I can figure out how to do it when you were uh, studying in Rome. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, well, that was my aunt's fault, too. Um, I, I wasn't studying there at, at that time. She sent me there on a vacation as a, uh ordination gift. So essentially said, go go to Rome, send me the bill. Um, well, I because I you know I'd done some research, read books and stuff about the Navy. I knew the uh, the U.S. Navy's Sixth Fleet Anchorage was down in Naples, just a one-hour train ride from Rome. So I hopped the train, went down there. And, and uh, this is where the lights really went on. I, I just, there was no doubt in my mind that this is what God wanted me to do. I find my way to the the anchorage and uh, just out in the harbor in all her glory is sitting the USS Forrestal. Big old aircraft carrier, uh, airplanes hanging out all over the place like get down the pier as close as I can get. Uh, and I run in, uh, how's this for Providence? Don't I meet up with the ship's Catholic chaplain? What are the odds? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's no accident in my mind. Uh, there was stuff going on there. He took me out to the ship. Uh, showed me around the place, and I was, I was really hooked. Um, I come back to Detroit, went straight to the Cardinal Dearden's office, and says, "You got to let me do this." Uh, and he was a oh, kind man, uh, very understanding, sympathetic. Says, "You're just ordained, John. Calm down." Um, uh, you got to do, uh, this is apparently, I didn't know at that time, it's an arrangement with the priests through the Catholic Conference of the United States. You've got to do seven years as a priest in a par in parish work in your diocese before your ordinary will uh, or can let you go uh, to the military. So, uh, that was the deal. He said, yeah, you do uh, two assignments, seven years here, and I'll let you go. And that's 
pretty well how it happened, except that he he up and died in the midst of that. And I had to have the same conversation with Cardinal Shoka. Um, but uh, 1982, off I went. So you jo- you joined you, yeah you joined up in 1982 um, to the uh, cha- and, and the U.S. Navy and off to the chaplain school. Um, f- for those who don't know, the uh, the uh, Army Chaplain Corps is one of the oldest and smallest branches of the Army. That that Chaplain Corps actually de- uh, dates itself back to July of 1775, when the Continental Congress authorized one chaplain for each regiment of the Continental Army. So really, the chaplain corps is older than the country itself. Um, oh, indeed. Um, and, and did you have the tip? there for two years. Yeah, did, that's what I was going to ask. Did you have sort of the typical uh, military rotation where they, they move you every few years? Uh, three years is normal. Uh, it seems that uh, hospital ministry in the military is, is very stressful stuff. Uh, so they they uh, try to move you a little sooner. Uh, two years is more the uh, the uh, norm for uh, hospital work, um, and that's what uh, they did with me. They they also want to give new chaplains a variety of experiences uh, and uh, kind of show them the 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 many different sorts of ministry that the Navy uh, has to offer so that you can, as you get more senior, you might become more specialized in one or the other. A lot of people don't know that we supply uh, chaplains to the Coast Guard um, and also the Marine Corps gets its uh, chaplain corps as well as doctors and corpsmen from the Navy. All the all the Marines are uh, trigger pullers. Uh, all their support. Uh, they don't like to be reminded of that. Uh, <laughs> comes from the Navy. Well, you guys are just uh, taxi drivers. You just drive from places on those big ships. But let me oh, let, let yeah, me move I mean, you from Norfolk. Oh, yeah. Walk us through your next couple of uh, duty assignments over this 26-year history. Uh, okay, um, from the hospital. I went, I went to Okinawa with the Marine Corps for, for uh, just a year. And I was supposed to stay longer than that. But the detailer, the guy who makes assignments, wanted me to uh, get into this exchange program with the Brits and the Royal Navy. So they pulled me out of that. Uh, and I lived in Portsmouth, England for two years. Um, the exchange program is there's something like 50 or, or so uh, Navy people of, of all descriptions, uh, ship drivers, plane drivers, mechanics, doctors, chaplains, medics, all of that, just trade, trade jobs uh, with their counterparts in the Royal Navy. So I uh, lived over there for two years at, at a hospital. Uh, that was terrific. Um, went from there uh, back home to uh, Groton, Connecticut, and a submarine uh, group. 
this is this is kind of neat for the Catholic side of the house. There's an admiral there who insisted on having a Catholic priest on his staff. Uh, normally, we didn't put a priest uh, as junior as me. I'm just a lieutenant commander now. Um, normally, it's all captains on an admiral's staff. Uh, but he wanted a priest, and I was available coming off the exchange program. So they put me on his staff in Groton. I was there two and a half years. Uh, Admiral Hooley was a serious Catholic, daily, daily mass goer, along with his wife, uh, Judy, wonderful people. Um, so there's that kind of command, uh, demand Catholic priests among the the hierarchy is just just very very heartwarming uplifting uh, went from there to my first aircraft carrier the John F Kennedy and we immediately went off to Desert Shield Desert Storm in 1991 uh, a wonderful place for a priest uh, to be. Uh, again, some very uh, important uh, Catholic believing uh, officers on that ship. Uh, eight out of the ten squadron commanders on the ship, and it's 70 aircraft, uh, were engaged uh, church-going Catholic people. Uh, that kind of leadership, uh, along along with the, the uh, captain who was uh, Eastern Orthodox, um, uh, you, you can't beat that kind of leadership to re- reinforce your ministry. Well, in, so, in something like 25% of the military um, uh, designate as, uh, or identify as Catholic, uh, but certainly it's... Uh, the chaplain corps in the military itself uh, uh, has all kinds of folks, uh, uh, including those who are non-denominational or atheists, but the chaplain sure. corps has Protestants and uh, Jewish rabbis and Muslim Islams and Buddhists. Uh, so so I suspect over time in, in these various assignments, you get to interact with all types of different chaplains, uh, uh, oh, Father Call. Yeah, um, the, the, we live an ecumenical ministry uh, all the time. Um, it's, uh, it's real, it's authentic. We enjoy each other's company. We eat meals together. Uh, our, our beliefs uh, may be different one to another in our religious practices uh, as well, but uh, we appreciate each other's ministry and our service. And if 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 you if you cannot live that way, uh, you don't last long in the service. You're found out pretty quick, uh, and you don't make rank. And you go home to find some other vineyard to minister in. Uh, you've you've got to be open-minded and tolerant, 
and accepting and willing to learn about uh, each other's uh, beliefs and practices. And I don't know an institution on the planet that does that better than the United States military. Because, uh, and I, want, I guess I want to make sure that folks understand that in, in, when you're a chaplain, you minister to everybody who's there, right? It, it, ah, it, good point. Could, could you elaborate on sort of, and, and, and I saw a quote that uh, I'll come back to you on, but it says, you, you, you're quoted as saying, quote, in the military, a priest goes to where the people are, close quote. But, but talk about who you minister to and, and the type of ministry. Well, you're right. It's essentially the ministry, uh, the uh, missionary model. Um, we go out. We don't have office. Well, we do have an office, but we don't wait for them to you know, come to us. We are out and about with everybody living the Navy life. Um, and that, uh, that goes a long way, especially with the Marines. If you're out uh, uh, living in the mud with them and uh, running with your pack with them, uh, you are you become one of the pack, as they say. Uh, we've had um, I'll give you an, uh, an example: the uh, the bombing of the USS Cole. Uh, they don't. Uh, Destroyer like that doesn't normally have a, a chaplain assigned to it, uh, but they were operating in the Seventh Fleet area, and one of the we call them circuit riders who just goes around from ship to ship, had spent a couple of weeks with the coal, and uh, gotten off uh, just before the bomb went off, and went off to do something else. Well, the, the Admiralty in, in Seventh Fleet tried to send them a couple chaplains from the Admiral staff. Uh, they, the coal wouldn't let them on a ship. They wanted nothing to do with them. They didn't know these people. They weren't about to come aboard and, and get deep down and personal with them. You got to be part of the pack. They wanted that guy who would, a uh, uh, Protestant chaplain, who had spent two, two weeks with them at sea. Uh, he was up in the Mediterranean at the time, but the Navy jumped through all kinds of hoops to get him down there, because he was the only chaplain they were willing uh, to set foot on the ship. You get that kind of relationship with the people you're ministering to. Uh, it it just pays dividends over and over and over again. At this time in Easter, I hope you enjoyed uh, that portion of the interview with Father John Call, talking about the ecumenical ministry that the Chaplain Corps is in the United States military. Some of us may have been lucky enough to, to be on a base or on a ship and got to know a particular chaplain well. Many of us had rotations that didn't really allow for that. So, um, you know, I think it's hopeful. It's spring, right? It's spring and hope. 
I think it's hopeful that there's uh, men and women out there doing this type of work. Um, if you go to veteransradio.net into the archives, you can find the complete interview with Father Cole. But you'd also find interviews uh, with uh, female rabbis that we've done who are chaplains. So it's a it's a pretty wide swath. Probably some of the most famous chaplains um, are those who've earned the Medal of Honor and are known colloquially as the Four Chaplains. So we're going to bring you a little bit about that after some words from our sponsors. Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative. Maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. We can all help someone going through a difficult time. Learn how you can be there for veterans. Visit VeteransCrisisLine.net. VeteransCrisisLine.net. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. Again, this is a special Easter program for Veterans Radio, and we're talking about chaplains in the military, and some, some I guess I'd say the most famous are the four chaplains. They're sometimes referred to as immortal chaplains. There were four World War II chaplains who died rescuing civilian and military personnel as the American troop ship Dorchester sank on February 3rd, 1943. It's often been referred to as the second worst sea disaster of World War II because it was a civilian liner converted to military service, and it was able to carry about 900 military passengers and crew when it was uh, shot at and uh, mortally wounded by a German U submarine. And uh, the four chaplains held, uh, helped out other soldiers board lifeboats and ultimately gave up their own life jackets when the supply ran out. The chaplains joined arms, said prayers, sang hymns as the ship went down. And they went down. They really uh, met the, the uh, demands of their various faiths to uh, act like God here on earth. Um, Each of the four chaplains were awarded Distinguished Service Crosses and Purple Hearts. They were nominated for the Medal of Honor, but they were technically ineligible as they had not engaged in combat with the enemy, and maybe that would have been inappropriate anyway, but Congress created a special medal for them with the same weight and importance as the Medal of Honor. These four ministers, uh, these four chaplains, all were brand new guys in the service. They had the rank of first lieutenant. Uh, One was a Methodist minister, uh, Reverend George Fox. There was a reform rabbi, Alexander Good. I should maybe say he's a doctorate, he has a PhD. There was a Catholic priest, Father John Washington, and a reformed church in America minister, Reverend Clark V. Poling. These guys all came from different backgrounds, different personalities, different denominations. Um, but when the time came, uh, they did what needed to be done to save other lives and profess their faith. They certainly uh, went to their 
eternal rewards, recognizing that they'd helped others survive and and giving them hope of a, of a better life. So if you're not familiar with the story of the four chaplains, punch it into your search engine somewhere. I'm going to give you a book to look at uh, later on that would also uh, really tell this story. Uh, it's been told in print and music and art and film. Um, uh, there was a 60-minute TV documentary produced in 2004 that you can find on YouTube. It's the basis of a uh, 2008, or at least it it was uh, going to be a movie. I don't know if it ever got made, Lifeboat 13. But it's, it's a great day to maybe reflect on what faith does, how one demonstrates his or her faith, and uh, certainly to pay homage to chaplains in the military in general, but certainly those like this, um, uh, the four chaplains, the immortal chaplains of World War II. We're now going to bring this a little closer to home. Um, We're going to talk, have an interview with Dale C. Wright. Reverend White uh, is a Navy chaplain, was a Navy chaplain, I should say, Um, and he was in Iraq during a lot of the chaos in 2005. Ultimately, he received the Combat Action Ribbon and a Bronze Star Medal for Meritorious Achievement, kind of unusual um, for a chaplain. You're going to hear about some of the work he did and, if you will, the value of um, getting together with a bunch of bad cigars and a bunch of Marines and creating a community where folks could heal and have discussions. Uh, this is what chaplains do today, and I think you'll find it very interesting. Exactly. So, so tell me a little bit more about how, you know, a, a, a nice you know, nice boy like you ended up in the military. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I was pastoring churches, uh, student pastor for three, and then uh, pastors in the New York Conference for seven years and uh, uh, felt a call to do some clinical pastoral education, uh, which is specialized training in, in a hospital setting. And so it was 1991, and I did some clinical training in a medical center in New York. I was the chaplain in the burn unit. Uh, And um, so when you get that training, it goes into a database with our uh, division that really oversees chaplains. That's called our endorsing agent in Nashville. And they they, uh, said, you know, you've got this specialized training. Why did you get it? I said, well, I want to be a better counselor for my parishioners. A nursing home is going in across the street, and I just want to enhance, sharpen my skill set, so to speak. Well, that that information and that training gets sent to our headquarters, and at that time, uh, uh, our endorsing agent was looking for uh, United Methodist clergy to serve in, in the military setting said, we, uh, we were looking for chaplains, and would you be interested? And I said, well, I don't have any military background, so thank you. I'm enjoying my church. And uh, so, uh, but the military got that information. And uh, we started to get calls from the Navy pretty regularly. And uh, 
I, I repeatedly said, thank you for the phone call. Uh, not interested. I'm enjoying my church. But one evening when I was at a church meeting, uh, my wife got a phone call from the Navy. And the recruiter asked her, uh, what do you do? And she said, I am a teacher. I teach Asian studies in high school. And they said, well, if your husband joins the Navy, you could live in the culture uh, in, which, uh, uh, in which you teach. So I came home and she said, hey, I really, I think maybe uh, something for us to think about. <laughs> Wow, and, that's, and, a, that's uh, a heck of a recruiting story. Yeah, usually it's uh, you don't you don't quite hear it like that. Um, exactly. So so was this you 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 know this is one of these things too where someone goes in and says, well I'll do one tour, and uh, whatever it is, twenty nine years later you come out uh, retired. And you, I I can't imagine you thought you were going in and you were going to stay for very long. Well, I I yeah, so I signed up. Uh, my bishop at the time of the same name not related. So I'm Dale C. White. My bishop was C. Dale White, uh, was not a big advocate of clergy and the military. And so the denomination uh, interviewed me and contacted the New York Conference Bishop, who has since deceased. Uh, obviously, this was 30 years ago. And I had to, to go and meet him. And uh, he said, I really don't, uh, I'm not really in favor of my clergy going into a pro-war institution. And I said, Bishop White, my perception, although I'm not in the military yet, is that military chaplains are as much pro-war as hospital chaplains are pro-terminal illness or prison chaplains are pro-crime. And he, uh, he nodded his head and said, uh, good perspective. And he <laughs> approved me. And I said, Bishop, if I am in three years or 30 years, whatever gifts and graces and skill sets the military give me, I will come back and serve the local church. It's interesting. A lot of my buddies thought I, having served as the senior chaplain for Navy medicine, they thought I would go from the Navy into the Veterans Administration. In fact, I had a lot of VA contacts and could have slid right into being a senior chaplain within the VA medical system. But I remembered the promise I made to the bishop. Uh, and although he's no longer alive, I am serving my church again as a director of congregational excellence in a district here in Virginia uh, because of that uh, because of that promise that I'd made. So well, you, uh, you, yeah, you it, certainly could, bring you'd certainly bring a unique perspective back into the community uh, because so few people serve and so few, few people understand what a chaplain actually does. Uh, what indeed, role indeed. he or she plays. So um, I think it's great that you're back in the community, um, kind of expanding people's thoughts and horizons about what that what that really means in the and and the need to go out and minister to those young men. A lot of them are young men who are in, in the service. Indeed, indeed. So so the first uh, you, you you enlisted about or or you became an officer in about nineteen ninety commissioned in about nineteen ninety two I think. Correct, 1992. Yep. So, so walk in. us, yeah, walk us through those uh, first. You know, we've got decades here to cover, so you can do it shortly. But walk us through those <laughs> uh, initial tours of, of what a chaplain um, and, and uh, somebody from the United Methodists uh, is doing in that role as a chaplain. Yeah. So before 2001, obviously, uh, 
first tour uh, was with a destroyer squadron. In fact, my first Commodore lives just uh, about 50 miles away from me here. We've stayed in touch. Uh, so I was a young lieutenant. He was a senior captain in the Navy. And those first two and a half years took me to the Mediterranean Sea, the Baltic Sea, the Black Sea, the Red Sea. Um, and I, I'd have to count probably 25 countries. Uh, if you remember from 92 to 94, that was the 50th anniversary of D-Day. So we were doing a lot of uh, a lot of events with countries in Europe, and uh, I remember my wife saying, "Hey, we joined the Navy to see the world, and I'm in Virginia Beach, and you're seeing countries all over the place." So, uh, but it was uh, it was great experiences, a lot of the community relations, a lot of uh, of deck plating, so to speak, going from destroyer to destroyer. Um, and, uh, and a lot of those uh, Navy officers that I uh, was able to serve uh, became four-star admirals 20 years later. Jim Stavridis, uh, Admiral Stavridis was the CO of the Barry. I was his chaplain on the maiden cruise. Uh, Gary Roughhead, one of our CNOs. Mike Mullen, who ended up being the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. He was on the Yorktown and was part of the squadron. And uh, so it was, uh, it was just kind of neat to see those uh, commanders and captains uh, move up the ranks. Um, from there, uh, I, I, I uh, fulfilled my wife's promise, or the promise I made to Linda. I said, hey, you know, we want to go to that part of the world that you taught. So we went to Okinawa. The greatest gift in Okinawa, of course, that was the 50th anniversary of the Battle of Okinawa. So uh, you know, there I was on the East Coast for the 50th anniversary of D-Day, and then we moved to Okinawa, where there a year later, two years later, having the commemorations of D-Day, and we were able to participate in that. But we got a phone call uh, as a chaplain that there was a, a baby born who was of mixed race that nobody wanted. And so we adopted our son, who is Okinawan and Black, uh, and uh, uh, have eternal... Uh, connections to uh, to Okinawa because of our son Michael who's 25 now uh, and works for Hilton Hotels <clears throat> and um, uh, because I'd done a sea tour and an overseas tour in true fashion the Navy detailer said well it's time to you come for you to come back to the states and do a shore tour at a hospital or a chapel and so they assigned me to uh, a, a tour out of Bremerton, Washington, on the USS Coral Vincent aircraft carrier to deploy oh. again. <laughs> <laughs> and so still a lieutenant, third tour, uh, off I go to do a Pacific cruise uh, and uh, head on over to the Persian Gulf. Um, so those were my lieutenant tours, uh, made lieutenant commander and went to do clinical training at a medical center for a year in, uh, in Portsmouth and was scheduled to have a follow-on tour at Portsmouth Naval Medical Center. Uh, and yet I had, had uh, worked for then the, uh, when I was with the Desron, for some reason he remembered me and when he became chief of chaplains rear admiral two-star barry black who is now the chaplain of the united states senate 
uh, said, hey, I had a, there was a very effective lieutenant out there on those destroyers. I'd like him to come up here to the office. And so on August 10th, 2001, I reported to the Pentagon complex to work as the operations officer for the chief of chaplains and was there for 30 days doing turnover with my predecessor and finished our, uh, our turnover on September 10th, 2001. And uh, speaking of another uh, significant uh, anniversary date, we just passed the 20th anniversary of September 11th, uh, 2001. And uh, you found, found yourself at the Pentagon on that day. Correct. Mark Hendricks and I, he's a Southern Baptist chaplain, just retired, 06, and myself, the first two Navy chaplains uh, running down onto the lawn of the Pentagon from the annex, which is on the side, was, the annex is no longer there, was uh, on the west side of the Pentagon, the side that was hit. Uh, that's another story unto itself, but uh, spent three years working as a lieutenant commander for the chief of chaplains, promoted to commander. Uh, they asked me, what would you like to do? I said, I'd like to go with the Marines in some fashion, maybe the air wing. The chief of chaplains at the time, the, the new chief, uh, Father Lou Iacello, uh, said, you know, uh, I think it'd be more effective with the ground infantry. And uh, off I went from the Pentagon in 2004 to 8th Marine Regiment and ended up in uh, Fallujah at the beginning of 2005. And, and uh, unfortunately, that uh, was a kind of a hot time in um, Iraq uh, in 2005, 2006. Um, can you, you know, uh, give us some thoughts, Pastor, on on your experiences, both both with the men and and on the ground uh, there in Fallujah? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, there there was at the time a a a training program called Crest Chaplain and uh, Chaplains hmm, C R E S T. It was a program to prepare chaplains to go with uh, Marine operational units into, uh, into uh, operational settings, training, and in, in into combat. Uh, I'd asked to go to that training. There was not enough time. And so I was assigned to an infantry unit as a commander, never having been assigned to an operational infantry unit. So I was a bit nervous. Uh, we did some training for two months at 29 Palms in the desert, and then off we went to Fallujah. Um, and uh, I just had to take my basic uh, skills, my instincts, uh, my pastoral training, and uh, uh, go in there uh, into Fallujah, realizing, hey, I am, uh, at the time I was 45 years old, going in with a bunch of 18-year-olds and saying, hey, I've had 45 years of life. These young Marines, many of them have had only 18 years of life, and I just need to use my role. I'm, I'm probably the age of many of their fathers, and I need to be a father figure, and I also have a lot of lieutenants who are first two or chaplains, and I need to uh, care and feed them. 
and so, and it's interesting, a lot of my uh, Lieutenant Chaplain's first tour, one just completed a tour as the White House Chaplain. Many of them are commanders and captains now and remind me of how helpful I was to them. Uh, I'll, I'll share a little bit about this uh, in just a moment. But, but going into Fallujah, I remember arriving um, and it was, um, we had to, we landed in, um, uh, in an air base uh, that, that an airstrip that couldn't have been any more than a few miles from Fallujah, from our camp. And yet I think it took us five hours uh, of evasive tactics to get to the base, uh, driving across desert, not on roads, uh, stopping, uh, and and just trying to evade the enemy. And I remember, you know, being a non-combatant, you're huddled down. Chaplain, we want you down. And so you don't know where you are, where you're going, and it's in the it's in the dark of night. I remember arriving at Camp Fallujah at daybreak, and the gunnery sergeant uh, looking at at all of these new fresh Marines jumping off the five ton and saying, you know. Uh, there are insurgents all around us. Some may even be in the camp. Uh, make sure that your weapons are ready for self-defense. And I said, and my religious program specialist, who is usually the self-defense support, had come earlier. And so he was not with me. I remember getting off the truck and saying to, to the gunnery sergeant, I said, well, thanks, Gunny. That's, that's very comforting uh, to an unarmed chaplain. <laughs> And he handed me a K-bar, which is one of these big knives, and said, Chapman, without, without a case, just handed me the knife and said, here, Chapman, protect yourself. So I'm walking now, and each, each person has to carry their own gear. So I have 70 pounds of gear. I'm looking for where I'm going to uh, bunker down for the next 14 months. I'm walking through the camp holding this big knife. And... <laughs> and and I remember somebody saying, everything all right there, Chaplain? Well, I think he, the gunny did this for effect, just, you know, so that people aren't complacent. But I had nowhere to put that knife. So I remember <laughs> finding him, I remember having to find him pretty quickly and say, take this knife back. You know, if we get to the point where the chaplain is the, is the last man standing, we're all in big trouble. Yeah. I, I don't so, think most people understand, uh, um, Pastor, what, role in a combat uh, mission the chaplains play. So can you talk a little bit about your role uh, at Camp Fallujah for, for the men that you served? Yeah, yeah, men and women. And so um, what's interesting is, um, uh, although I looked at it as I do uh, any role that a pastor plays, uh, some people look at it as as incredible support, and I looked at it just as doing my job. So let me give you a couple of, of aspects. One is caring for your subordinate chaplains as a regimental chaplain. Uh, and so each month I would uh, I asked all the executive officers to have their chaplains and RPs come to my little hut uh, at Camp Fallujah. We would spend the morning either praying uh, and or just uh, uh, reading a passage of scripture uh, and just spend some time uh, doing some training. Uh, and that's what we would do in the morning. 
And then we would fellowship and break bread together and have lunch and then come back and either watch a movie uh, or play horseshoes. Uh, we had an old television set and a DVD, uh, not a DVD, CD, but what did we call them? VHS player. <laughs> so you have uh, videotapes uh, and just, just fellowship. Uh, if, if they couldn't get a ride back to their facilities in the evening, we would sit out and smoke a cigar together. I was never a cigar smoker. It wasn't about smoking the cigar. It was about fellowship. And, uh, and so that turned into a monthly thing. And chaplains have reminded me, thank you for taking us out of combat for a day. We told our executive officers it was training, uh, but it was really, uh, the fact that, that clergy spend 24 seven, if, if you think about this, the average American works an eight hour day, let's say maybe 40 hour work week, okay? But you're gonna get the weekends off, the Monday holidays and the month of vacation. Now go to combat. In combat, you are working probably 16 hours a day for 365 days. There is no break. You can't tell the enemy, uh, hey, uh, a couple of days off here, stand down. So you, you multiply 365 times two. So you've got 730 work days in a year that the average uh, person uh, works in combat. Um, whereas the average American, 365 minus 100 days of the weekends, uh, you know, it's going to take you three years, maybe, to, to, to do the work that you do in combat. What that means is that there's a stress on the force. And a chaplain is working to mitigate the stress. So you're working within your own community, your chaplains and religious program specialists to care for them. But you're also then providing opportunities for your Marines to also just exhale. And so we had a little, a little Jordanian building, you know, that uh, was just a metal building. We had Starbucks coffee brewing all the time. We had this old beater television where we were playing television. Uh, I think partway through the year, we were able to get a satellite hookup so we could have football games, a, a place of, of distraction from combat. Uh, uh, we had uh, uh, connections with donors to send um, non-perishable goods, uh, toothbrushes, toothpaste, things of that nature. We got so much of that stuff that we eventually had a, a, um, a, a trailer uh, from a tractor trailer just dropped next to my chaplain's hooch. Uh, and we had a couple Marines build wooden boxes. And in one deep box, it was just nothing but toothpaste. And another box was Listerine. And another box was gum. And it was, you know, we would open the store, but it was free. You know, come on in. Here's a bag. Take one of each, whatever you want. We must have had 50 of those bins. Uh, videotapes. Uh, uh, just a myriad of things, J just something to, to boost the morale of our Marines. And then um, something that we started was cigar and movie night. Now this just was happenstance. I was sitting with a Naval gunfire liaison officer one afternoon, sitting in a couple of old plastic white 
Walmart chairs, having a cigar. And he uh, and I were talking and he said, oh, there's an inbound round coming in over on that side of the king. I said, what do we need to do? He says, oh, he was trained to know uh, and hear and estimate where these things were going to hit. He said, and a lot of the camp was wide open. Um, and so he said, oh, it's going to hit over there in an open area of the base. So it hits uh, and the sirens go off. And I said, what do we need to do? He said, well, the, the enemy is, has shot that from a mobile launcher attached to a pickup truck. That's how they operate. They have already left because we know where they were. So we're not going to get another round. Uh, in the meantime, the sirens are going off. People are running around the camp. And this lieutenant and I are just sitting calmly, smoking cigars. <laughs> and I didn't realize the visual that that would give to folks. Uh, a, a visual of calm, a, a visual of, of a peaceful presence. And so uh, a, a couple of Marines came by one day and said, hey, you have any more of those cigars? They said, we're getting donations of these cigars. We got a lot of, not a not a aficionado of cigars. I didn't know that they were bad, dried yeah. out cigars, <laughs> but, but they were cigars. And so a Friday night, uh, this lieutenant and I were smoking a couple of cigars again, and the two or three Marines joined us. I think at one point it became a joke. We had about 80 Marines sitting all around outside this hooch um, smoking cigars. And someone came along and said, hey, let's hang a sheet up. It's uh, almost Christmas. And maybe we can project a Christmas movie on the side of a building. And it ended up being just a gathering place. And so uh, probably a long story long is that one of the roles of chaplains is uh, to be a morale uh, booster, someone who provides hope. Obviously, we are there for our primary role, and that is constitutional freedom of, of religious provision uh, and facilitation. So I spent a lot of time doing uh, religious services and getting around uh, all on bar province and then and, lastly and then lastly counseling and you don't realize how powerful counseling is i didn't realize uh, you know you we're always doing counseling and it, about four years ago i was in buford south carolina having a glass of wine and eating a piece of salmon in civilian attire in a restaurant by myself. I was the chaplain of Navy medicine visiting our hospital down there. And I was alone eating. And I see this guy on the other side of the restaurant looking at me, making eye contact. And, and when you see someone staring at you, you get a little nervous. And I kept eating. I looked at my phone, looked up. He's still looking at me. I tried to pay no attention. I notice he pays his bill and he gets up and he walks very, very uh, intentionally towards me quickly. And I'm thinking, okay, what's going on here? And he said, chaplain. And I said, yes, I I'm a chaplain. He says, no, no, no. I know you're a chaplain. You're Chaplain White. I said, have we met? He said, you counseled me in Iraq when I was with the infantry. I'm no longer Marine. He said, you counseled me? I was having some problems back home. I was distracted. I, I, was, I was melting down. 
You spent six sessions with me. You got my head straight. It allowed me to survive in that environment where I needed to be focused and it saved my marriage. I never thought I'd see you again, chaplain. Thank you. It's a pretty powerful testament to what chaplains do for our military. I hope you uh, learned a lot from listening to Pastor White. His idea that having a calm and peaceful presence in a gathering place, I think really fits in with this time of Easter that we're thinking about here on Veterans Radio. I wanted to bring to your attention a book that's out there, Beyond Belief, True Stories of Military Chaplains to Defy Comprehension. The principal uh, editors of it is uh, Doug Sterner and Dwight Zimmerman, who you've heard on this program before. But they thought the stories of chaplains were so amazing that they should uh, have a bunch of folks write a book on on this. And I had the fortune to write three of the chapters, one involving Dale White, who you just heard of, and others. There's a chapter on Father Joseph Lafleur, who was a... Um, a prisoner of war in World War II, and his story and his faith and devotion that he demonstrates to others in the prisoner of war camps uh, are just amazing stories, and I'd, I'd encourage you to go and, and read about the story of uh, Father Lafleur. Um, and, you know, he was in the Philippines. Uh, he was taken to Japanese uh, prisoner of war camps. Um, ultimately, he died, uh, but not before he gave testament to his Lord through his actions to so many, and that so many people saw and recognized. He um, really was quite something and received the Distinguished Service Cross as a result of those activities and as a result of the testament that his fellow prisoners of war gave afterwards about what he did to keep them whole, both medically, physically, and spiritually. So again, this is a, there's a lot of great stories about a lot of great chaplains. Uh, one place you could get a whole series of these discussions is in the Beyond Belief series, True Stories of Military Chaplains that Defy Comprehension. This book's available on Amazon, just like every book's available on Amazon. But I think you might uh, really enjoy uh, reading that as well. Certainly hope you have a great uh, Easter holiday here or any of the other religions that are celebrating at this time of year, certainly our friends in the Jewish faith. But um, we can't do these kind of programs. We can't bring you stories about... uh, really incredible chaplains without your continued support. So if you want to help us out, go to veteransradio.net, click on sponsors. Hey, anything from $50 to $5,000 would be greatly appreciated. And we want to thank our VSO sponsors, Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles, Chapter 310, the VFW Graf O'Hara, Post 423, the American Legion Escorn, Post 46 in Ann Arbor, Certainly our friends at nvbdc.org, who certified disabled and veteran-owned businesses, and our friends at Legal Help for Veterans that fight for veterans' disability rights. So all of these people help us bring you these stories. Uh, we really are grateful to them, and we're grateful for, to you for listening to Veterans Radio. Next week, Dale will be back. 
with some more incredible stories. And every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, we post a new podcast, a new interview, a new story that we've developed over the week. And we'd like you to go to veteransradio.net, click on our podcast, and listen to those as well. Always feel free to send us any ideas that you may have for stories. Um, send it to dale at veteransradio.net or jim at veteransradio.net. We like to uh, bring you the stories you want to hear as well as the ones that we want to tell you. So uh, if you get to that spot and you say, hey, you ought to hear about this organization or what this particular military hero did or what this particular veteran is doing today, those are the kinds of things that we like to bring and give to a wider national audience. Um, It's important to record and tell these stories so that they don't get forgotten. We just went through a series of discussions or stories from chaplains from World War I and World War II and and, uh, Iraq. We could have gone all the way back to the Civil War, chaplains in the Civil War discussed in the book Beyond Belief that we talked about. So keeping these uh, stories alive, keeping this history alive is very important. So I'm Jim Fossone, and until next time on Veterans Radio, you are dismissed.